Hopefully that's not the alarm for me to be done this week. Uh, we are uh, continuing through the, the book of Matthew. And my vision for today's sermon is that it will build on last week's sermon. And so I'm going to just kind of give you a refresher from last week and so that we can all be on the same page. Last week we talked, last week we talked about um, the leper and Jesus touching the leper. And I talked about how, for me, it's important for me to uh, identify with the leper, to remember that I, I, I have sins, to remember that I have brokenness, that I have this, uh, these sores on my sort of spiritual body, and that Jesus is not passed to the left or to the right, uh, but he looks at me and touches me and, uh, and embraces me and heals me. And makes me clean. And we talked about how Jesus goes around and he does this, not just for lepers, but he does this for everybody kind of who is unclean, everyone who is not good enough, everyone who is uh, somehow unseemly or unwanted. And the leper is the kind of uh, the absolute furthest extent of that idea. He, the leper is isolated and alone and lives completely shut off from all of his earthly relationships. In fact, he has to shout out unclean, unclean if someone gets close to him as a warning to say, don't get close to me. And so he has this extraordinarily isolating condition. And the idea then is, uh, and it's I, I, very powerful for me personally, is the idea that Jesus looks at that person who's been abandoned, looks at, at that person who's been isolated. And he says, the work of the kingdom is to wrap you back into things. Right? The work of the kingdom, the work of the spirit is to embrace you and bring you back. No one is meant to live such an isolated, broken, uh, marginalized sort of life. And so we're, we're looking now at uh, a, a little bit, I think that is a really excellent kind of microcosm of Jesus's whole ministry. Okay, And I want to remind you that, that this is not, this idea of Jesus being there for the broken, of Jesus reaching out to uh, the lowest of the low is not just something that happens in Jesus's lifetime, but the early church and the really, really, really early church, the people who wrote the New Testament believed the same sort of things about Jesus, that that ministry continues to take place, that Jesus didn't just do this on earth with lepers, but he continues to do it uh, with people. And the, the kind of classic sentiment is from James chapter four. And earlier in this, he actually says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But here he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So I want you to take away from that, that this idea that Jesus is out there for the broken, the idea that Jesus is out there for those who don't deserve it, the idea that Jesus is moving and, and looking for people who are isolated, people who are alone, people who are hurting, and he's ready that the work of the kingdom is to wrap them back in to the love of God and to the love of neighbor. To do that is not just something that stops with Jesus's earthly ministry. That continues. And I, I think the other there's a second reason I wanted to quote James to you. And the second reason is that the book of James is written to people who are already Christians. Right? So too often we think of ourselves as the hum, the humility thing is the thing you do to get in. Right? It's the thing you, you get into the kingdom of God through being humble and repenting. And so I, I just maybe do this this one time. So the leper only has to be humble before Christ, fall at his knees one time and beg for mercy, and then and then he goes on and things are now different. But that's, that's not the point. 
It's not just about conversion. It's not just about salvation. We in our everyday lives as Christians must also continually continually take the posture of humility before Christ, and he will continually reach out and exalt us, lift us up, and care for us, and teach us. He will continually do that. Uh, now, as another kind of point of clarification, this idea of kind of this upside-downness, right? Because we, we look out into the world today, and we, we see people who are exalted by all sorts of things. They're exalted by, uh, I don't know, um, how good they are at sports, right? We just finished the NFL season, so now everybody's going to start paying attention to basketball more. And, and uh, you've, got, you've got these, these athletes who are, uh, are given extraordinary amounts of attention. Uh, I joked last week about how you know we will pay people millions of dollars to do the pregame show to talk about these athletes. I mean that's how their like glory in our social sphere extends so far that the people who talk about them are still worth millions of dollars. Process that. That's kind of crazy. Uh, that's that's social exaltation, right? And so we we have this kind of system of our own for exaltation of how exaltation works. And we, we place certain people at the top, and whether we like to admit it or not, we place certain people at the bottom. And we always have, and we probably always will. But this idea that Jesus is now going out to flip that on its head, you'll notice that Jesus is not the gentle, merciful dove with everybody. Jesus has some extraordinarily harsh and hard words for certain people. And almost unanimously, the people that he goes at Full force are people who have let themselves steep in pride. Almost exclusively. Now, for the Pharisees, the pride is, uh, is, ex ex it, is uh, it works itself out. It sort of flows out from them. Their pride flows out from them through the way that they treat people who are not good enough. Right? They're the Pharisees are the ones who have these very strict laws about uh, even stricter than the laws of Moses of, of how you treat people and who gets to come close to God and who doesn't. And there's no more prideful thing on the planet, I think, perhaps, than someone who will say to you, you're not good enough to come close to God. I know. I mean, how could you possibly know that? And so pride, when Jesus comes full force at them, he comes full force at particularly at their pride. And so Zechariah who's the father of John the Baptist, he sings this song or this prophecy that Luke uh, gives that I think gives us another, another light into uh, this idea that Jesus' work is this upside down, this flipping of the system. He says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn, broke, or the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's going and he's looking. He's out there. The dawn is breaking for those who live in darkness. If we refuse to admit our darkness, we will miss that. If we refuse to admit our need for it, we will miss it. And so in this passage that uh, I think Ivy read this part in Matthew chapter 11, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligence and have revealed them to infants. Have revealed them to infants. Now, just before this, the paragraph before Jesus says this, he's lamenting the fact that he's been going around Galilee and people have not been repenting and accepting the kingdom. 
People have been resistant throughout Galilee, this Jewish area. And he says, if I had gone to Tyre and Sidon and performed the weeks, that, the works that were performed in Capernaum, Tyre and Sidon, not Jewish. These are not people who should know anything about God. These are people who would have probably despised uh, both God and his people. And he says, if the works had been done there, if the works had been done there, I'm, I'm telling you, they would have repented. And so, uh, and he's lamenting. He even says, I don't have no idea what this means. This is one of those things where I think maybe you should like leave it as a sort of metaphor and not try to break your brain to figure out what it means. But he says, it will be better for those in Sodom and Gomorrah than it was for the people of uh, Galilee who rejected him. I don't know how it gets worse than like salt, sulfur fire falling from the sky. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but I'm going to leave that to him. Um, it's rough stuff, right? And so the idea then, the very next paragraph, after he's explained how the Jews are missing it and the Gentiles, they would have gotten it if I had gone to them and done this. If, and he's reversing it again. He says, this is when he now says, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligence and have revealed them to infants. They have revealed them to infants. And I want to I want to talk about that real quick about this idea of infancy, or as the uh, Ivy read from the NIV, and the NIV says, you little children. All right, so, so yesterday, uh, me and the family went to the beach, and uh, I had a two-year-old who was attached to me all day at the beach, and which was great and fun, and that's, that's the way his life is, and uh, he's either attached to myself or to Abby. And, uh, and I, we were kind of hiking down cause you know, we went to some pretty, pretty rugged places on the court, on the coast. And so there was a lot of climbing and, and hiking down and, and, uh, you know, uh, everybody has to do that on their own except for the little child, right? Everybody had, we, everybody had to like shimmy down the cliff on their own, except for the little child. Everybody had to sort of stare the danger in the face except for the little child. Because right? he was holding my hand the whole time. And when it got too hard, I just picked him up and put him where it was safe. I literally led him down the path. Now, that's what happens with little kids, right? I mean, we, we acknowledge and understand that uh, there are certain things that little kids can't handle. And so we either do it for them or we teach them to do it. And, uh, and, and normally it's some sort of divinely inspired mix of those two things because uh, – it can be really hard to tell which one ought to be which. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, if uh, sometimes as a parent, you even have to teach your kid how to go to sleep. Uh, it, can be, it can be an extraordinarily uh, intimate, really hard, but also really, I mean, imagine the, the intimacy of being the one who teaches a person, a human being, how to like, go to sleep or how to go to the bathroom <laughs> or, uh, or how to brush your teeth. Or how to do all these things. You, you have to have a guide when you're a little child. You have to have someone who will care for you and lead you which way to go. And when you're wandering down uh, muddy, slippery cliffs to get to the beach, you have to have – if I'd have let my two-year-old do that, he would have fallen. He might have been fine. He might not have been fine too. All right, so this idea of this infancy – I want you to keep that in your head because the very next paragraph, 
is one that we often quote. And uh, I don't know that we remember the bit about the infancy. I don't know that we remember the bit about the little child. Because the next thing that Jesus says is, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is not intended for light work. Right? A yoke is, uh, is designed to relieve you of really hard work so that the oxen will do that really hard work for you. This is kind of a weird statement. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does that mean? You're pulling a really light wagon, maybe? If so, that's not, that's not the primary function of a yoke in those days. You've got to plow through arid land. Like that's the primary function. I mean, uh, they probably would have shared their like somebody. They might have had like a community ox that they would then share. And during uh, during the time to to plant the seeds and to plow the fields, they might have gone around and and uh, everybody borrows the ox because you don't want to have to do that heavy burden yourself. You want to have the ox do it. And so, what's this idea of take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's very. That's not the the yoke image at all. The yoke image is the image of putting a burden on something. In fact, we we like call these things beasts of burden, right? That's like the name for them is burden. And so we we have this uh, this kind of weird statement that we like to to quote and we like to talk about as as man just cast your cares about upon Jesus and he will just make you feel better, right? He'll just Take care of all of your pain. But I want to I give you some historical background on this statement because Jesus is, is using a common statement that Jews would have said to themselves in the first century often. When you, in, in the Jewish world, in the first century Jewish world, you would have young boys who would be raised to learn the Torah. Sorry, just boys. And uh, those boys... The, the women in Israel did uh, a lot of work that we would normally not consider sort of the traditional female work because they would have had to also work in the fields and they would have often done a lot of the more masculine work, which is why the Romans saw one of the other reasons that the Romans didn't like the Jews very much is they would talk about how they had the, the roles of men and women mixed up. But so anyway, these boys would uh, they would learn the Torah, and if they were good at the Torah, then they would continue to learn, and they would go on to learning the historical books and the prophets and so forth. And the kids that weren't very good would then get tossed back to learn a skill with you know with their dad, whatever their dad was doing. But all the kids, all the young boys would learn the Torah. Okay, first five books of the Bible. And then, uh, and as they got better and better and better, after they got kind of went all the way through the Old Testament and they had kind of mastered that idea, the, mastered the, 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 the bit of the, old, the whole Old Testament, then they could choose to become a disciple of a rabbi, okay? Disciple of a rabbi. Now, Jesus is called rabbi a number of times. Anytime you read the word teacher, somebody is basically calling Jesus rabbi. So a rabbi was the you know, de facto religious leader in a town, and you could choose to become a disciple of that rabbi. And when you chose to become a disciple of the rabbi, this is what you were said to have been doing. You were going to uh, take that rabbi's yoke upon you. All that rabbi's teaching, was that was, that was the, the yoke. And most of those rabbis bragged about how 
hard their yokes were and about how heavy the burden was of their teaching. About It was sweet and good, but heavy and hard and awful. <laughs> and so when Jesus says this is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble at heart. There's this other bit about it just before this sentence where Jesus says that basically uh, God the Father has given him all things and has entrusted him all in all things. And you cannot know God without first knowing his son. You cannot know God without first knowing his son. Which means that God, if Jesus is gentle and humble in heart and wants you to learn from him, therefore God is is humble and gentle and wants you to learn from him. And God and Jesus wants you to take his yoke upon you. And you will be treated like an infant when you take that yoke upon you. Certainly there is hard ground to plow. Certainly there are difficult seasons ahead. Certainly there will be painful times. But you will not be left with the yoke all to yourself. This father and his son will hold your hand. If you will humble yourself, if you will admit that you are an infant, if you will lower yourself over and over again, if you continue to take the posture, I'm not going to lead my own way. I'm going to follow. If you will humble yourself and say, it is not my will, but your will that I wish to be done. If you continue to do that, he will hold your hand and you will do the work, but it will be light. It will not break you. You will be treated as an infant. He will care for you. It's a, a fascinating sort of mashup of a couple of different images. And uh, it actually is, is, it made me think about the story of the, of the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. And a lot of times we think we kind of end the story. Like, I mean, I even, you know, this is like my eighth year of preaching here, and I've never preached through Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus because it's like painful, right, to get through some of that stuff. It can be hard. And uh, maybe now I'm, now I'm going to have to now that I've said that out loud. But uh, run for the hills. Um, no, we, we like end the story, right? In our mind, it's all about Exodus, and it's all about God shows up, and the Father, right? Israel is, is his child, right? The Father shows up, and he breaks the bonds, and he frees them. And we love that story. That story sounds awesome, right? Like, I just want God to break into my circumstances and break the bonds, break the yoke, and set me free. That's not where the story ends, though, because Israel... They're infants, and they're like terrible too, kids, right? I mean, they've, they've got some serious problems going on, and they need to be fathered. And God has not released them and freed them just so that they can be free. He has asked them to do work, and he has promised that he will guide them in that work. And so Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, those three books are all teachings, it's like, okay, now I've released you. I've broken the bonds and now you're free. But now hold my hand and I will guide you like a child through the wilderness and I will teach you how to be my people. 
I will teach you. I will be your father and I will teach you. Take my, forget the yoke of the Egyptians. Take my yoke upon you now. It won't feel like slavery. It won't be anything like that. But I'll lead you and I'll guide you and you will be my light unto the world. And we all know that then his favorite term is that this is a, a stubborn people, uh, a prideful people who would not lower themselves. Not too long after they're out into the wilderness, they say, hey, why don't we go back to Egypt? At least, at least there was food there. And so there's this idea that, that God has, has, uh, has this purpose for our salvation. He has this purpose for breaking our bonds that when he exalts us, when we humble himself, when we humble ourselves before him and he exalts us, he exalts us to something and not to something that he will leave us alone for, something that he will guide us through and teach us and care for us and be our rabbi, our teacher. There's this other uh, point that I want to make, if I can find my clicker, is that uh, we talked about we talked about infants. Um, and what uh, kind of how infancy works? But who are these infants that he's talking about? That they've been, it's been revealed to that God has had the good pleasure uh, through His grace to reveal these things to him. Uh, oh, I can't. I need like a volunteer to point the laser. Can you guys see the laser pointer? Can you actually see it? No. No. Okay. Good. Then maybe I'm not blind. Let's just forget about the laser pointer. Well, I'm not pointing anymore. Oh, ha, yeah. Good job. Good idea. Yeah, start right there. Okay, so this is the, the map of the, the Jewish temple at the time, okay? And so Todd's got the mouse right there on the Holy of Holies. And uh, anytime you do the Gospels, anytime I preach through the Gospels, you're going to hear this over and over again. I'm sorry if you're tired of it already, but, I mean, it's, it's crucial to the story, okay? The idea of the Holy Holies is that... Um, that's where God lived. That's where heaven and earth sort of had this, this intermingling place. And so you would go, the priest would go once a year and he would offer this sacrifice that would allow the people to intermingle with God. Okay. And so uh, come out a little bit. This is the sanctuary. This is the place where priests would go and, uh, and they, would, they would offer um, incense and they might offer some other types of sacrifices, not the... Not the um, not the one sacrifice that's skipping my brain at the moment, but they would go and they would do these things and, and there they'd be uh, doing sort of ceremonial duties. Let's come out a little bit further. Uh, if we don't need to talk about the porch. Go to there, right there. So that's the altar. That's the place where uh, they would actually uh, sacrifice the animals. This is where they would have the fire uh, and, and do the, the sacrifice. On the, the Passover, they would actually do that on two different days. They would have so many people that were sacrificing for the Passover, they would do over and over and over again. All day long for two days, they would sacrifice the Passover lambs. Um, so this whole area where this is, uh, yeah, stay right, right in there, that white, that white space, uh, that is the priestly court. So only a priest can get there. And there are these gigantic thick walls between the priestly court and the sanctuary. And then there's a big curtain, the curtain that tears. Uh, when Jesus is crucified, that curtain is between the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. And so this white space is the, the court of, of the priests. And so you had to be a ceremonially cleansed priest to get in there and do your function. Okay, 
So go to this little blue, this little blue rectangle there. Yeah. So that is called the court of the Israelites. Now, any clean, righteous Jewish man could go in there and he could like witness kind of what the priests were doing. But that's as far as he could get. Right. God's dwelling place. He can't see it. He can't touch it. He can't do anything with it because it's through those walls and he's not clean enough. He's not he's not anointed to be able to do that. Now, come out a little bit more. This is the, the court of the women's court or the court of women. So Jewish ceremonially clean Jewish women could go into this space. OK, this is where they could get. So they're even further out. So you've got pre, one priest once a year who can get to God and represent people and, and, and make the sacrifice. And then you come out further and you've got uh, you've got the priests who are called and ordained and are allowed to, to do a closer function. And then the men are a little further out and then the women are even further out. So now go to the outside of it. And this, uh, this, I couldn't find a map that had this part, but now there's like this big market, and this is the court of the Gentiles, okay? This is the court of the non-Jews. Anybody could kind of go into this court, right? Anybody could be there. And actually, uh, we go to the, you can probably read it, Todd. It says the beautiful gate right there. So that is like the front center gate that goes in. So if you're on the outside of that gate, you're, you're unclean. You're probably unclean. And you can't go on the inside. When uh, Paul or when Peter and John encounter uh, a cripple in like in the early stages of Acts, I didn't look this up. This is just coming to me. Uh, they, that's where he's sitting is at the gate. Beautiful. And the reason he's sitting at the gate is because he can't he's not allowed to go inside the gate. He's not allowed to go inside. He's not allowed to get any closer to God than that because he's unclean, because he's broken, because he's crippled. OK. And so there's this whole system of pushing people further and further and further out. Everybody who has to stay in that court of the Gentiles, okay, on the outside, as far away from God, kind of symbolically as they can be, those are the infants. Those are the people, Jesus says it another time, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they're, they're like running into the kingdom of God while you Pharisees, you clean Jewish men who maybe hang out in this space really close to God, you're, you're missing it. The infants are the ones who are out. The infants are the ones who have been pushed away. The infants are the ones who have been uh, ostracized from the presence of God, who have been segregated from who he is. And so this image of, of God wanting to take these infants and guide them and make them his force for good in the world, his force for his love, his love of God and his love of neighbor, his desire to kind of put this easy and light yoke on people. His desires for that to be around those people who are on the outside. Now, here's the question. How many of you are of a pure Jewish line and could go on the inside of that? I didn't think so. <laughs> right. The whole idea of the gospel it, well, part of, not the whole idea, but a major part of the gospel is you and I are on the out. We come to the gospel not as insiders. We come as foreigners. We come as, uh, in the book of Colossians, he talks about us as being, as being immigrants for the gospel in the first chapter. We come as the broken to God, and he says, child, let me lead you along the way. There are some hard roads ahead that you can't make on your own. But if you'll follow me, we'll change the world together. 
You look to your left and your right. I'm going to yoke you with people who can take care of you. People who will bear your burden together. And so these infants, who are they? They're everybody on the outside. Everybody who was on the outside looking in. And as Matthew is fond of doing, he quotes from the Old Testament, the very last verse that we read today. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is coming to break down all those walls in the temple. Jesus is coming to say to you and me, to us infants, to say, now's the time. Hold my hand. Take my yoke upon you. Let me lead the way. Let us change the world together. This is who we are. We can never forget. If I've learned anything from teaching and studying church history is that we want nothing more. Those of us in power want nothing more than to reinstitute that whole system. Not the sacrificing part, because we think we're too good for that, but the system where some people are close and others are far away. And we left to our own devices, we'll do that over and over and over and over and over again. So we have to humble ourselves day in and day out and remind ourselves we are brought in by grace. We have to look and to listen and to be led We cannot decide which way the yoke should be pulled. We have to be led. And not led by a taskmaster, not led by a pharaoh, not led by an evil uh, dad or mother, but led by a father who bends down to us and says, my child, let me show you the way. Learn from me because I am gentle and humble. Let's pray. God, I thank you that that you don't just leave us to our own devices. I thank you that you restore us and that as as we walk down this narrow way with you, that you do teach and you do restore and that you do bring us to a newness of life that the, the old in us begins to die and decay and the new in you begins to, to be full and vibrant And I praise you for that, and I pray that each and every one of us would just renew that process day in and day out, that we would be granted through your Spirit with uh, an attitude of humility, that we would be thankful that this is the God that you are, and that we would get out in your fields and do your work, not of of our own design, not with our own schemes and business plans and branding, but we would go with our hand in your hand and with our brothers and our sisters at our side and we would be led which way to go. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.